0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to the Darshan Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Darshan Kulkarni. It's my mission to help you trust the products you depend on. As you may know, I'm an attorney, I'm a pharmacist, and I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you think about drugs, wonder about medical devices, or even consider cannabis or obsessive pharmacy, this is a podcast for you. I do have to, have to emphasize my guest and I are both lawyers, so th- uh, this is not legal advice. I'm also a pharmacist, this is not clinical advice. I do these for educational reasons. So if you like these video podcasts, and I think they're a lot of fun. I find myself learning something new each time. So, uh, if you if you like something that's, that you're listening to, please like, leave a comment, please subscribe. If you think people might learn something, uh, please share. If you if you during the conversation you think that there's something interesting we discussed, please please uh, ask questions. We'd be happy to pull them in if we can. Um, if you want to find me, you can always reach me on Darshan Talks on Twitter or just go to our website at darshantalks.com. Our podcast today, our live stream today, is going to be about trademarking. Our guest is the partner. is a partner at Dwayne Morris. She's the team lead for the firm's fashion, retail, consumer-branded uh, products industry focus group, and she's the vice chair of the firm's WINS uh, program, which is the Women's Network program. Uh, she can be reached, and I want to point this out, she can be reached at ccampbell at duanemorris.com. Uh, our guest for today Christiane Campbell. Hey Christian. how are you? Hello, I'm good, how are you? Good, good to see you, good to talk to you. It's been you as well. it always
1: is. It's a pleasure.
0: Pleasure, so let, let's talk a little bit about things that are going on. One of the things that I, that was really interesting to me before we start jumping in, uh, was you talking about uh, how you're getting more involved in cannabis litigation, which yes. I think yes. is fascinating because uh, as I was telling you before, right before we got on, You you saw the odd cannabis litigation going on before, but everyone I'm talking to is talking about that right now. Is there a reason for the recent buzz? Or is... Go ahead. Um,
1: I I think it goes back to, maybe kind of was um, accelerated by what we call the New Jersey effect. So uh, the level of New Jersey's legalization really had an impact on not just the tri-state area, but the mid-Atlantic region. So um, in terms of legalization of cannabis, any given day you look at the kind of the map of where you have some level of legal cannabis use, whether it's medical or recreational or, or both um, the map originally kind of looked like a, like a hamburger where the, the legal is the legal areas were the buns and then the, the middle of the country was really not, didn't have a whole lot. So you had like a very, very um, mature market in California, Oregon, um, Colorado, Washington, Nevada, and then you had Massachusetts, uh, Florida, and then the East Coast kind of filling in and and when New Jersey came online, it really impacted um, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. So I think what we're seeing is um and you and I have talked about this 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 marching toward, federal legalization or you know, so many different changes um, and filling in the middle of the United States where there will be some level of legality. And I think more and more uh, companies, entrepreneurs, investors are recognizing that this is going in that direction. Um, so getting into the cannabis space still feels, I think, Early and and new to a lot of people, but um, the market's getting more and more mature, especially in, in California. Um, and I think it's it's just an it's a build, it's a buzz that's going to continue to build um, until we get there. So I, I think that's probably partially behind the the buzz. Um, you know, there's more and more in terms of you know looking at federal legality being down down the pike, um, and I think that's really legitimized. Um, you know, we have what we call the legacy market, which was kind of the underground and illegal. And there's more and more mainstream, probably because of the the medical um, medical cannabis industry, um, mainstream uses that are becoming less. Le- uh, the stigma is going away a little bit, I think. In that,
0: that that's kind of interesting the way you you phrase that, which is you're, you're talking about this anticipation that the rules are going to change. Um, mm-hmm. Have you? Obviously, there is a market sentiment that supports that. Have you seen anything that suggests, from a legal perspective, that's actually going to happen?
1: Yeah, um, the farm bill is one way.
0: Yeah,
1: um, which is, I mean, it's it's old news now, but uh, the farm bill is what really opened up the floodgates for so much CBD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of, and and there's talk of descheduling um, the the marijuana aspect. And that would really make a lot of changes because then you wouldn't have marijuana falling under the controlled substances act. Um, It wouldn't be a schedule one drug. So uh, although I have to say there is definitely a, a recognized need for there to be regulation. I mean, you have alcohol, tobacco, firearms. A lot of these types of uh, things that have to be regulated from a federal level or at least a state level, and that's that's not going to go away. Um, nobody's saying like let's just open the floodgates and everybody gets a free for all. That that's not going to happen. But um, so from a legal perspective, you know, I think not necessarily starting with the farm bill, but that's something at least in my world um, with with trademarks and branding, I really noticed made a significant change and really propelled the industry forward it it created a lot of snake oil um, and a, <laughs> a lot of uh bs to wade through i guess you could say but um but has certainly changed the market um, increased the the number of products that are on the market which you know um, heightens the need for branding and distinct branding
0: it's it's interesting you you mentioned this um, the concept of snake oil and the concept of mm-hmm. um, branding and how that sort of Coming all, all of it's coming together because obviously branding plays a huge role in what what people will buy and and the impact thereof. Um, Are you aware of the FDA's? And there's no reason for you to be. I just want to be clear. But are you aware of the FDA's recent guidance on intended use? Well, I do
1: know um, FDA is looking at um, at CBD as potential drug, and therefore. Um, to the extent that it's being investigated for its uh, drug benefits and its drug uses, um, it, it, it presents challenges for me, again, in my world with trademarks, because that means that your your use of um, a trademark on a CBD product, because it's under investigation by the FDA, falls within the purview of the FDCA and makes it technically unlawful use if it's in general commerce. Um, so that's kind of where the, the, the trademark and brand interplay is with, with the FDA and FDCA.
0: Yeah, the, the reason I'm saying this is, uh, the FDA came out with a recent guidance, literally, uh, well, it's been in play for about three or four years. And, and the key piece that's come out for those people who aren't aware, it's literally happened within the week. So for people who aren't aware, it's not like you've missed something huge. It's a huge thing, but it's one of those things that you'll see more come out uh, as we continue. But the FDA definitely winked and nodded at the CBD and the cannabis industry in general basically saying that you can't hide behind disclaimers and you can't hide behind saying things like, oh, not intended for drug use, but used for X, Y, Z purposes. So what I expect as we continue is this idea of the FDA getting more and more into what claims are you making? And are these claims just within the state? In which case the FDA might say that we're gonna practice uh, uh, jurisdictional discretion uh, and enforcement discretion, if you will. Uh, alternatively, um, if it starts crossing interstate lines, which a lot of these companies are thinking about and considering as you're you're well aware, that's gonna become a huge issue as we continue. So so I guess my, my question for you is, do you advise co- uh, companies in the cannabis space with that view in mind, or is that so unclear and murky right now that you're kind of going, look, let's start with the rules right now, work with that, and we'll have to keep adjusting as we continue?
1: Uh, a little bit of both. So, um, you know, on the, on the branding side, you know, branding is more than just picking a name and a logo. It's it's your colors, it's your packaging, um, everything about how you, how you bring yourself to market, what you look like on a store shelf. Yeah. And um, at least in terms of packaging, um, you know, the labeling is really important. So it is something that clients, you know, they have to be aware of, familiar with, get guidance on, yeah. um, but also be prepared to be flexible. Um, yeah different regulations, you know obviously it's the FDA, but every state has different yeah. guidelines and, and regs in terms of what what your packaging has to say, what what has to be on there. Um, from a again trademark branding standpoint with the, with the labeling and and contents and source and things like that is really important because um, of how much the CBD became so popular, especially. and you have a lot of mislabeling happening. I mean, trademark laws are in place for the purpose of consumer protection and anti-competition or, you know, preventing unfair competition. Um, So when you have things like incorrect labeling, not only is that a consumer issue, um, you know, from from dosing standpoints. I mean, a lot of times you have in the pharmaceutical arena or the medical arena, you have doctors that are prescribing a certain amount of Cannabis to a patient, and if if the concentration is incorrect uh, on a label, or if the if the dosing is incorrect, and things like that, that's really a consumer issue as well. Um, but some of the the disputes over you know packaging labeling, concentration numbers, and things like that are coming about in in a false advertising, uh, under false advertising theories, because you might have a company that um, is not really putting the resources into its concentrations and its, its actual product, but they're saying it's more concentrated than it is, or it has more of this or has less of that or whatever it is. Um, if that's not accurate, again, there's the consumer, um, protection issue, but also it's, it's false advertising. So.
0: So as a trademark lawyer, how often do you, so, so I'm going to try to, try going to try to phrase this properly. Um, there there are there are certain clients I've had who go, stay in your lane, I'm asking you to do this X job, work on this X job. And then there are other clients who go, no, I, I need you to point out things expansively that might impact. As a trademark lawyer, um, do you struggle with clients for saying, I'm not asking you to tell me if my, my percentages are wrong. All I want from you is, does this label make sense? What is your perspective? How do you advise clients um, do you do you have trouble staying within the lane? I'll be honest, I, I tend to land up paint, painting outside the lines every so often, if you will. But um, I'd be curious how, what your take is.
1: Uh, it depends on the client. Yeah. And a lot of times when a client tells me, I don't hear it often, I, I should yeah. say. If a client, in general terms, if a client says to a lawyer, stay in your lane, it usually means they don't want to pay for advice that falls outside of, you yeah. know, the the lawyer's area of expertise. Um, I have to say, I, I think my, my clients and I are aligned every every client, every client's different, every client's, um, intentions, every client's goals with respect to market are different. Um, and I, and I like I pride myself in getting to know my clients very well and understanding what it is they need from me. Um, if that, if a client has internal marketing people, I'm certainly not going to step on toes. But if a client comes to me with a, you know, an idea for a brand and they've asked me to clear it, if I um, only look at, you know, what are the what are the issues with respect to use of this brand and registration of this brand from an office standpoint? Like, are they going to get an office action from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office? If I only look at that, and I don't tell the client, hey, you know, this really may not sit well with. Um, a particular community or a group of people. If I don't advise them about potential PR issues, then I don't think I'm doing my job. I don't know that a client would, you know, launch and then come back to me later and say, "You didn't tell us that, you know, Twitterverse was going to explode when we use this tagline or slogan because it offends, um, you know, a certain group of people." Uh, but I don't think I'm doing my job if I say, "Yeah, you're clear for use and registration of this brand." without considering the, the market aspects as well. Um, you know, if a client specifically says to me, our marketing people are looking at the ad copy for purposes of, um, you know, marketing and and claims. And it's, if it's a social media launch, they're making sure everything has the, the sponsored and the, the right hashtags and all. Um, if they tell me they're working on that fine, but Um, Generally speaking, again, I I like to take a holistic approach, and I don't think I'm doing my job if I tell a client, yeah, go ahead and use this brand, because it's clear from a a rote trademark standpoint. I think it needs to be, you know, I need to be aligned and understand my client's goals. Um, You know, with scope of launch, I need to understand in what jurisdictions they're going to plan on using a particular mark. And it may be different jurisdiction to jurisdiction as to what sits well with um, the general public and what doesn't. So Uh, let me...
0: Let me pull you into a question that's very topical right now, mm-hmm. um, which is this idea. Um, I don't know if you do you know who Megan Rapinoe is? Yes. She's the, OK, so um, she's considered um, a very woke individual and, and she's the, currently, I believe, the the face for Subway. And I just read yesterday's news or I can't tell anymore because the days seem to all just come together. But within this week, uh, apparently the Subway owners are saying that after the Olympics, they don't want Megan to be the face. I have no idea if that's accurate or not, but I just saw that name. And um, my question to you is when you're clearing individuals, can, can, a, can you actually tie, when, when you get spokespeople, how from a trademarking perspective, from a control of the look perspective, how do you do that in a way that's, that doesn't come back to haunt you? And I think, I'm thinking specifically of, I forget, I think it was the Verizon guy who then went out and worked for, I think it was T-Mobile, and I'm not getting the company perspective of this, but from an advice perspective, how do you ensure that A, you choose the right um, representatives, B, is there a trademark process associated with it, and C, how do you control that appropriately? That's a really,
1: really good question. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, One, you know, we always say I learn something new every time I do these. I did not know that Megan Rapinoe was doing Subway. That that seems odd to me. Um, But very topical. I do have a client that is, um, you know, tends to be very trendy, and um is very much about staying up on the social media they get involved in twitter wars with their competitors and is an iconic global restaurant brand so when they select um people to partner with uh if it's somebody that is so so hot um trend wise whether it's in the music industry or you know sports athletes um we have to look at and I rely very much on my team that's younger than I am. And that is very up on like the TikTok and the Instagram. And I follow who I follow, but like, I find that I'm, I'm like years behind them on some of the things. Um, We have to be really familiar with um, kind of the message and um, you know, what, what content this particular celebrity or particular athlete, whatever it is, is putting out and what they're really about and what their image says, um, because it might not fit with our client's brand. Um, it might turn off certain of their loyal consumers that happen to be older or maybe younger, or, um, there's so much that's, that's important, um, in terms of communicating, not creating, um, you know the perception that you know I, I know there's a number of brands that have done it, but you know latch onto a particular individual or have certain policies that that may offend others. I'm trying not to go too much into specifics because I don't want to, you know. Yeah. Um, but but we do, you know, from a trademark perspective, it's not so much the the trademark from like the Lanham Act and the filing with the USPTO a, a aspect. It's what does the client's what's the client's brand about, and does this athlete or does this singer fit with their brand messaging um and sometimes the answer is no and sometimes clients don't want to hear no because they really want to go after like the hottest rapper of that day or the hottest TikToker of that day and um you know they want what's hot but i have to remind them what you know you might spend a lot of money for this and it's not going to have a very long shelf life sometimes they don't care um but to have, you know, the hottest athlete of the day endorsing your brand or working with you or partnering with you, you know, six months after they've won a particular championship or something, um, it might get stale and, and you've invested a lot. And how much bang are you getting for what you're investing in a particular celebrity? Um, and then there's, you know, you, you can't control what some of these celebs say on social media. <laughs> so you really have to understand, you know, what it is they're about, you um, you know, you can't have somebody that's going to be going off and dropping really foul language, um, representing a, a brand that is also, you
0: know, communicates with kids and yeah. younger
1: generation. So,
0: so, 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 let's say you choose ex athlete, right? Um, mm-hmm. my, my first question would be, when you're communicating with the athlete, going, look, I'd really like you to be part, like, to be our brand representative. Um, but I, I don't want you to turn around tomorrow and and be the representative for the for the next Brian. I, I forget who it, uh Dave Chappelle actually said this and I, I was watching one of his comedy shows. He's like, yeah. Look, I, I I was paid by both Coke and Pepsi, and recently I'm being paid by Pepsi. That's what I'm supporting right now, but that does not send out the message you wanted to send. So, no. as from from a trademarking perspective, from a brand control perspective, mm-hmm. as as the lawyer, how do you go to a Dave Chappelle? And obviously, I don't know if you represent him or even anything associated with him. But um, how do you tell a Dave Chappelle who has his or his own sort of control? Look, we, we can't have you do this. Like, do you do trainings? Do you have contracts in place? Like, what do you do to control this?
1: It's all about negotiating power. So first of all, you're never going to be talking to Dave or the athlete or the celebrity. It's always their people, you know, right, you're talking to people. Um, yeah. And they usually have, it's a sliding scale. Um, you know, the more celebrity and brand power, celebrity power somebody has, the more negotiating leverage they have. So, right. you know, I'm a, Dave, a Dave Chappelle obviously, is very desirable. So if you're going to approach his people, probably comes with a pretty high price tag and a very, very little wiggle room in terms of negotiating his contract. And he's, I don't want to say he's a loose cannon, but he may not be somebody who want who you can control or that you want to control. Um, it would be, you know, clauses in a contract that say, you know, you, if you're endorsing this brand, you can't endorse these competitors or you can't, and it's got to have a certain amount of time. Um, you know, A little bit you have to play to the emotion of the celebrity or their people and say, well, doesn't it look bad for them if they endorse Coke this week? And then, you know, three months later, endorse Pepsi. They're going to start to look like they're, you know, a, a hired guy. You know there's there's other words for it but um they're going to start to look like a little bit of a sellout like oh i'll take whatever you know money from ever um so not only is the the branding disingenuous because it's like well okay it's kind of like influencers when they start to really i don't say sell out but they get big it's like wait a minute they're losing a little bit of the the personal touch that they had with what they were endorsing originally now they're being paid to do it and i think consumers you know the woke consumers starting to recognize that so um you know, you're going to be talking to other people, you're going to be looking at a contract, you're going to want to have negotiating leverage. And the more desirable the celebrity, the less leverage you're going to have. Um, and controlling what they do on Twitter, controlling what they say on Instagram, post on Instagram, it's it's virtually impossible. Um, and the more control you try and exert, the less attractive you're going to be as a, as a brand that that they would endorse.
0: So, so let me ask you this question. Um as someone who's probably negotiated a lot of these contracts. Uh, so one of the most famous ones we still, I i, I live in a, in a sad world where FDA is the, the coolest thing in the world. And I, I love reading about this stuff. But uh, the, one of the coolest things that happened to us was uh, Kim Kardashian was involved in a drug advertisement. And she said certain things. And it uh, turns out that what she said, and I expect it was thoroughly vetted, but turns out that what she said um, was was not sufficient. Was was deemed to be false and misleading by the FDA. So she had to come back in and she had to do a corrective ad. My question for you is: When you're negotiating that uh, that contract with Kim Kardashian, I expect that you're do you're negotiating the one the first one, saying that look, we need you to uh, to do this and do this right, and we'll vet it mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. If there's a situation where she has to effectively by law correct it from a negotiating standpoint do you do you kind of tell your client look i don't even think we need to pay her because she's required to do this according to the fda or do you actually take the position that no she's a celebrity you you you're, you're going to get a lot of reach anyways you might as well keep her happy how how do you sort of balance <laughs> that that weird dynamic where you're required to do it but you're going to charge me a million dollars. I have no idea what the numbers are, but a million dollars this, otherwise, could be right. So how, how do you manage that balance and, and sort of engage with her in an appropriate way?
1: It, it uh, Lawyer answer, but it depends. Uh, it, it's going to depend, <laughs> too, on what side I'm on, if I'm representing the talent or if I'm representing the brand that needs the talent. I can tell you, having gone through that, um, your contracts from that point on, if you're on the brand side... Are going to include a clause that says any corrective advertising is included here, and maybe you know Kim's lawyers look at that and say, "No, you can't have us on the hook for you know what you call corrective, and it's actually just subsequent ads." Um, so that's probably going to be a point of, of contention. But yeah, I think I you're you're better positioned to have that buttoned up in a contractual arrangement at the beginning than have to argue about it later. If that makes
0: that's, sense. That's so both interesting. Sides, both sides. No, of course, of course. Uh, um, No, but but that to me, um, if I was the lawyer for Kim or the talent, as you put it, my first question is why, why are you, are you expecting a problem? Like, why are we, why are we (laughs) constructing the post-divorce? That's when you throw
1: the FDA under the bus. (laughs) 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 Yep, you throw the U.S. government under the bus.
0: Um, So, so let's, let's take that next, Thing. We, we talked a little bit about uh, clearance searching, and I'm oh, you know what, we're kind of actually almost out of time, so let me let me ask you a general question. We're gonna have to come back to this because I know that there's a lot more to discuss here. Um, we, we talked very briefly about clearance searching, so my question to you is, what is it, why does it matter, and uh, what's changed recently that people should probably keep an ear out for?
1: Okay. Um, clearance searching is something I, you know, anytime a client comes to me and they want to launch a brand, they want to expand a brand, um, they want to protect a brand. I, I always recommend preliminary clearance and availability searching because what it does is it gives us the, the closest thing a lawyer can get to a crystal ball. And it gives us an idea of, I mean, it's true. And I, I tell clients, this, it's, it's a crystal ball for, you know, not that much money. Um, you know, on the front end, clearance and availability searching, it's, it's, what in the patent world they might call freedom to operate opinion, but that's effectively what we give. Um, Really not that expensive. It's not that much of an investment. When you consider getting involved in a trademark lawsuit um, in federal court or even before the trademark trial appeal board, could potentially be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or over a million dollars because you're dealing with discovery, you're dealing with experts, you're dealing with surveys, and it's just such a headache um, that could have been avoided. And I can tell you that in the whole freedom to operate type, um, assessment letter that I give clients, I very rarely say no. I, it's it's really easy for me to say, oh, it's not available. There's this party and that party. The harder job and, and when I'm doing my job is when I tell a client, these are the risks. Um, I'm hearing the client say to me they want to move forward anyway. So my job then is to figure out how we mitigate those risks. So a clearance and availability search is not just to give a client a yes or no answer. It's to guide them and help them position themselves for growth Uh, For an exit, for expansion geographically, um, expansion product lines. A lot of clients coming to me now, especially in the cannabis or alcohol space, will say, "Well, look, you know, we have we're a one trick pony right now, but our vision for our brand is to eventually evolve into a lifestyle brand." So I have to be looking beyond just the alcohol uses and and the cannabis uses. I have to look beyond that and and broader and I have to look outside the United States as well because so much commerce is done now internationally. Um, so clearance and availability searching is is one of the the greatest value adds that a trademark lawyer can bring to a brand and a brand portfolio. Um, again, you know it saves you money in litigation and it and it gives you um, kind of the closest thing you can get to a crystal ball and a clear path forward and a strategy. Um, it helps inform a strategy in terms of brand protection and brand enforcement going forward. And what's changed is um Trademark Modernization Act is coming down the pike. So that's really going to change how clients address office actions and, and use of actual marks.
0: I just wanted to use that last bit to whet the appetite for the next conversation we're going to have. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. We'll probably land up talking a little bit about clearance searching. I'll be honest, when we started talking earlier today, I 100% did not expect it to go down the Dave Chappelle route. So um, <laughs> but you never know what these conversations are going to be gone. like. <laughs> um but but this is this was as always an amazing conversation so I have four questions for you as you know mm-hmm. so I'm gonna ask them to you right now the first one um based on what we've discussed what would you like to ask the audience
1: how many in the audience are actually involved in uh the practice of trademark law if like I don't know if you can mm-hmm. pull that but yeah.
0: Well, let's find out. Um, I am not. So we'll find out when that <laughs> comes back. That's why you call me. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so number two, um, how can people reach you? It's on the it's on the screen, but um, but for those people who are just listening, um, mm-hmm. I just want to, would you like to repeat how people can reach you?
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my email is morris.com and I'm fairly active on LinkedIn as well. Um, I try and post relevant articles. I do a little bit more, uh, you know, in terms of, branding and its intersection with fashion, um, with luxury, with cannabis um, on LinkedIn. And there's not that much of that content out there. So um, if you're interested in what's going on with like luxury cannabis brands, uh, follow me on LinkedIn and and get some information.
0: That sounds awesome. Um, so that's two. Uh, number three, um, what is something you've learned over the last month that people might be interested in, might be surprised to discover?
1: Um, you know, I've been saying it and shaking the trees for as long as I can uh, remember, at least as long as I've been practicing um, trademark law as it relates to cannabis. But I keep hearing people say that they think that cannabis brands are not protectable and cannot be national because of the state-to-state regulatory framework, and that's wrong. So it's not something new to me, but it seems as though it's not a message that's really getting out there. So cannabis brands are protectable and um, and you are going to see, especially because of the um, increase in, in infused beverages, the increase in multi-state operators, we call them MSOs, um, you're going to see more and more cannabis brands uh, becoming national and growing to national state. And I think it's really important for at least people interested in the space to understand that this is not um, going to be a, a siloed industry. I don't think uh, for much longer. So,
0: so is it fair to say that it'll be national, but you'll be doing it on a state-by-state basis? Or are you saying that you can actually register in the in the federal register? I guess.
1: Both. Um, so we do a lot state by state when it's actually scheduled, um, you know, technically unlawful product. If it's something that's uh, federally lawful, for example, consultation services, website services, social media, uh, we can get protection at a federal level. So so when we when I'm talking to clients, I'm, I'm making a tiered um, strategy approach for them that takes, OK, what can we get you at the federal level? And what can't we get you at the federal level that we should, you know, cover statewise right now, and then eventually consider, um, you know, expanding the protection to federal if possible.
0: So when you're doing, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm over, but I have to ask: when you're com- coming up with this state-by-state strategy, um, how do you decide there are 50 states and each one mm-hmm. having a cost associated with them, so that gets expensive really quickly? Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you advise clients on which states to start with? And does that, um, and and then do you sort of just advise them on the risk that if we don't go to these other states, someone else may have priority? And how do you handle that? That's a softball. That's a good one.
1: Um, The states actually answer that question for you, because unlike the federal Uh, trademark registry, the states do not have an intent to use basis to file. So in order to file a trademark for trademark protection in a particular state, you have to have used the mark in that state. So necessarily, you're only going to be able to file in the states where you've got actual product or services being rendered. Um, Usually that's going to be the states where you've got a license. Um, You're either operating or you you got a license. So, um, So the MSOs are the you know, the clients that we're talking to, multi-state operators, where they might have that opportunity to file in multiple states. Um, but a lot of clients are, you know, kind of siloed state by state. So they're only able to file where they're actually operating, actually have products on the ground. And um, from a federal perspective, my advice is always, to the extent that we can get you federal protection for something, let's do it, to get you that presumption of ownership and validity nationwide, that will gain you that um, priority, that you know, waiting until you have use in a particular state might not get you.
0: Um, I, I can keep going. Let, let me stop there. Uh, <laughs> so interesting. Another time. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. The, my last question for you is um, what was something that made you happy in the last week?
1: Do I have to limit it to one thing?
0: <laughs> no. You can limit it to as many things as you want.
1: My son water skied for the first time. He ah. Um, so that made me I, I, I was screaming my head off. Um, but right before we got on our call today, I hung up um the phone with my team of, of lawyers and paralegals and assistants and docketing clerks and associates, and we'd been on the phone for two hours. And um, you know, I, I hung up the phone and said to them, you know, I know we're not together, I know we can't see one another, but I just was it made me happy to tell them how happy I am with the work that they've done and the resiliency that they've showed and the efficiency that they've showed over the course of the last team, the last 18 months um, of being remote and not being together. Um, so it was a two hour call and yeah, it's, it's a lot of work to do. It's a heavy lift on a lot of their parts, but um, it made me happy to, to be in in the room, the virtual room with all of them. And, um, you know, feeling that team work and that, um the the teamwork ethic it just really made my day
0: that's awesome um that's wonderful so so what we're gonna do is we're gonna have you back very soon i hope you'll consider coming back and um this was wonderful thanks again of course always